Chapter One of The Mountebank by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter One. In the month of June, nineteen nineteen, I received a long letter from Brigadier General Andrew Lackaday, together with a bulky manuscript. The letter, addressed from an obscure hotel in Marseilles, ran as follows: My dear friend. On the occasion of our last meeting, when I kept you up to an ungodly hour of the morning with the story of my wretched affairs, to which you patiently listened without seeming bored, you were good enough to suggest that I might write a book about myself, not for the sake of vulgar advertisement, but in order to interest, perhaps to encourage, at any rate to stimulate, the thoughts of many of my old comrades who have been placed in the same predicament as myself. Well, I can't do it. You're a professional man of letters, and don't appreciate the extraordinary difficulty a layman has, not only in writing a coherent narrative, but in composing the very sentences which express the things that he wants to convey. Add to this that English is to me, if not a foreign, at any rate a secondary language. I thought all my life in French, though that to express myself clearly on any except the humdrum affairs of life is always a conscious effort. Even this little prelude in my best style has taken me nearly two cigarettes to write, so I gave up an impossible task. But I thought to myself that perhaps you might have the time, or the interest, to put into shape a whole mass of raw material which I have slung together, from memory—I have a good one—and from my diary. It may seem odd that a homeless bohemian like myself should have kept a diary, but I was born methodical. I believe my mastery of army forms gained me by promotion. Anyhow, you will find in it a pretty complete history of my career up to date. I have cut out the war. Is there a lucus naturae of any nationality but English, who, rising from private to brigadier general, could write six hundred and seventy-three sprawling foolscap pages purporting to contain the story of his life from eighteen eighty something to June nineteen hundred and nineteen, and deliberately omit? as if it were neither here nor there, its four and a half years' glorious and astounding episode. I have cut out the war. On looking through the manuscript, I found that he had cut out the war, in so far as his military experiences were concerned. In khaki he showed himself to be as English and John Bull as you please, and how the deuce his meteoric promotion occurred, and what various splendid services compelled the exhibition on his breast of a rainbow row of ribbons, are matters known only to the War Office, Andrew Lackaday, and his maker. Well, that is perhaps an exaggeration of secrecy. The newspapers have published their official paragraphs. Officers who served under him have given me interesting information, but from the spoken or written word of Andrew Lackaday I have not been able to glean a grain of knowledge. That, I say, is where the intensely English side of him manifested itself. But on the other hand, the private life that he led during the four and a half years of war, and that which he lived before and after, was revealed with a refreshing Gallic lack of reticence which could only proceed from his French upbringing. To return to his letter. I have cut out the war. Thousands of brainy people will be spending the next few years of their lives telling you all about it. But I should rather like to treat it as a blank, a period of penal servitude, a drugged sleep afflicted with nightmare, a bit of metempsychosis in the middle of normal life. You know what I mean. The thing is that I is not General Lackaday, it is somebody else. So I have given you for what it is worth the story of somebody else. 
The manuscript is in a beast of a muddle, like the earth before the bon Dieu came in and made his little arrangements. Do with it what you like. At the present moment I am between the devil and the deep blue sea. I am hoping that the latter will be the solution of my difficulties. By the way, I am not contemplating suicide. In either case, it doesn't matter. If you are interested in the doings of a spent meteor, I shall be delighted to write to you from time to time. As you said, you are the oldest friend I have. You are almost the only living creature who knows the real identity of Andrew Lackaday. You have been charming enough to give me not only the benefit of your experience, riper than mine, of a man of the world, but also such a very human sympathy that I shall always think of you with sentiments of affectionate esteem. Your sincerely, Andrew Lackaday. Well, there was the letter, curiously composed, half French, half English in the turning of the phrase. The last sentence was sheer translation, but it was sincere. I did not say that I sent a cordial reply. Our correspondence thenceforward became intimate and regular. In his estimate of his manuscript from a literary point of view, the poor general did not exaggerate. Anything more hopeless as a continuous narrative I have never read. But it supplied facts, hit off odds and ends of character, and, what the autobiography seldom does, it gives the ipsissima verba of conversations written in helter-skelter fashion with flowing pen, sometimes in excellent French, sometimes in English, which, beginning in the elaborate style of his letter, broke down into queer vernacular. It was charmingly devoid of self-consciousness, so that the man as he was, and not as he imagined himself to be, or would like others to imagine him, stood ingenuously disclosed. If the manuscript had been that of a total stranger, I could not have undertaken the task of the bon Dieu making his little arrangements to shape the earth out of chaos. An elderly literary dilettante, who is not a rabid archaeologist, has an indolent way of demanding documents clear and precise. As a matter of fact, it was some months before I felt the courage to tackle the business. But knowing the man, knowing also Lady Oriol, and having in the meantime made the acquaintance of Mademoiselle Elodie Figasso and Horatio Bacchus, playing, in fact, a minor role, say that of Charles, his friend, in the little drama of his life, I eventually decided to carry out my good friend's wishes. The major part of my task has been a matter of arrangement, of joining up flats, as they say in the theatre, of translation, of editing, of winnowing, as far as my fallible judgment can decide, the chaff from the grain in his narrative, and of relating facts which have come within the horizon of my own personal experience. I begin, therefore, at the very beginning. Many a year ago, when the world, myself included, was young, I knew a circus. This does not mean that I knew it from the wooden benches outside the ring. I knew it behind the scenes. I was on terms of intimacy with the most motley crowd it has been my good fortune to meet. It was a famous French circus of the classical type that has by now, I fear me, passed away. Its haute école was its pride, and it demanded for its premier equestrienne the homage due to the great artists of the world. Bernhardt of the Comédie Française, I think she was still there in those far-off days, Patty of the Opera, and Mademoiselle René Saumur of the Sac Rocambeau were three stars of equal magnitude. The circus toured through France from year's end to year's end. It pitched its tent. What else could it do, seeing that municipal ineptitude provided no building wherein could be run chariot races of six horses abreast? 
But the tent, in my youthful eyes, confused by the naphtha glares and the violent shadows cast on the many tiers of pink faces, loomed as vast as a Roman amphitheatre. It was a noble tent, a palace of a tent, the auditorium being but an inconsiderable section. There was stabling for fifty horses. There were decent dressing-rooms. There was a green room, with a wooden practicable bar running along one end, and a wizened, grizzled old barman behind it, who supplied your wants from the contents of a myriad bottles, ranged in perfect order in some obscure nook beneath the counter. They did things in the great manner in the Sac Rocambo. It visited none but first-class towns, which had open spaces worthy of its magnificence. It despised one or two night stands. The Sac Rocambo had a way of imposing itself upon a town, as an illusory permanent institution, a week being its shortest and almost contemptuous sojourn. The Sac Rocambo maintained the stateliness of the old world. Now the Sac Rocambo fades out of this story almost as soon as it enters it, but it affords the coincidence which enables this story to be written. For if I had not known the Sac Rocambo, I should never have won the confidence of Andrew Lackaday, and I should have remained as ignorant as you are at the present moment of the vicissitudes of that worthy man's career. You see, we met as strangers at a country house towards the end of the war. Chance turned the conversation to France, where he had lived most of his life, to the France of former days, to my own early wanderings about that delectable land, to my boastful accounts of my two or three months' vagabondage with the Cirque Rocambeau. He jumped as if I had thrown a bomb instead of a name at him. In fact, the bomb would have startled him less. "'The Cirque Rocambeau? "'Yes.' He looked at me narrowly. "'What year was that?' I told him. "'Lord Almighty!' said he with a gasp. "'Lord Almighty!' He stared for a long time in front of him without speaking. Then, to my amazement, he said deliberately, "'I remember you. You were a sort of a young English god in a straw hat and beautiful clothes, and you used to take me for rides on the clown's pig. The clown was my foster-father. And now I am commanding a battalion in the British Army. By gum, it's a damn funny world!' Memory flashed back with almost a spasm of joy. "'By gum!' I repeated. "'Why, that was what my old friend Ben Flint used to say twenty times an hour!' It was a shibboleth proving his story true. And I remembered the weedy, ugly, precocious infant who was the pride and spoiled darling of that circus crowd. Why I, a young gentleman of leisure, fresh from Cambridge, chose to go round France with a circus, is neither here nor there. For one thing, I assure you, it was not for the bright eyes of Mademoiselle René Saint-Mouillot or her lesser sister luminaries. Ben Flint, the English clown, classically starred Auguste in the arena, and his performing pig, Billy, somehow held the secret of my fascination. Ben Flint mystified me. He was a man of remarkable cultivation, save for a lapse here and there into north-country idiom, and for a trace now and then of north-country burr, his English was pure and refined. In ordinary life, too, he spoke excellent French, although in the ring he had to follow the classical tradition of the English clown and pronounce his patter with a nerve-rasping Britannic accent. He never told me his history, but there he was, the principal clown, and as perfect a clown as clown could be, with every bit of his business at his fingers' ends, in a great and important circus. 
Like most of his colleagues, he knew the wide world from Tokyo to Christiania. But, unlike the rest of the crowd, whose life seemed to be bounded by the canvas walls of the circus, and who differentiated their impressions of Singapore and Moscow mainly in terms of climate and alcohol, Ben Flint had observed men and things, and had recorded and analysed his experiences, so that, meeting a more or less educated youth like myself, perhaps a rare bird in the circus world, standing on the brink of life, thirsting for the knowledge that is not supplied by lectures at the university, he must have felt some kind of satisfaction in pouring out, for my benefit, the full vintage of his wisdom. I see him now, squat, clean-shaven, with merry blue eyes and a mug of a face, sitting in a deck-chair on a scrap of rugged ground forming the angle between the row of canvas tables and the great tent, a cob pipe in his humorous mouth, a thick half-litered glass of beer with a handle to it on the earth beside him, and I hear his shrewd talk of far-away and mysterious lands. His pretty French wife, who knows no English, charmingly dishevelled, uncorseted, free, in a dubious peignoir trimmed with artificial lace, she who moulded in mirific tights, sea-green with reflections of mother-of-pearl, like Venus Anadiomene, does the tightrope act every afternoon and evening, sits a little way apart, busy with needle and thread, repairing a sorry handful of garments, which to-night will be tense with some portion of her shapely body. Between them sprawls on his side Billy, the great brown pig whom Ben has trained to stand on his hind legs, to jump through hoops, to die for his country. "'They don't applaud! They don't appreciate you, Billy!' the clown would say, choosing his time when applause was scant. "'Show them what you think of them!' And then Billy would deliberately turn round, and, moving in a semicircle, present his turn to the delighted audience. There lies Billy, the pig, the most human pig that ever breathed, adored by Ben Flint, who, not having given the beast one second's pain in all its beatific life, was, in his turn, loved by the pig, as only a few men are loved by a dog. And there, sitting on the pig's powerful withers, his blue smock full of wilted daisies, is little eight-year-old tow-headed Andrew Lackaday, making a daisy-chain, which eventually he twines round the animal's semi-protesting snout. Yes, there is the picture. It is full summer. We have lunched, Madame and Ben and Andrew and I, at the little café-restaurant at the nearby straggling end of the town. At other tables, other aristocratic members of the troupe. The humbler have cooked their food in the vague precincts of the circus. We have returned to all that Ben and his wife know as home. It is one o'clock. At two, matinee. An hour of blissful ease. We are in the shade of the great tent, but the air is full of the heavy odour of the dust and the flowers and the herbs of the south, and of the pungent smell of the long row of canvas tables. I call little Andrew. He dismounts from Biddy the Pig, and, insolent brat, screws an imaginary eyeglass into his eye, which he contrives to keep contorted, and, assuming a supercilious expression and a languid manner, struts leisurely towards us, with his hands in his pockets, thereby giving what I am forced to admit is an imitation of myself perfect in its burlesque. Ben Flint roars with laughter. I clutch the imp and throw him across my knee and pretend to spank him. We struggle lustily till Madame cries out, "'But si, Sandré, you are making Monsieur too hot!' And Andrew, docile, ceased at once, but, standing in front of me, his back to Madame, 
he noiselessly mimicked Madame's speech with his lips, so drolly, so exquisitely, that Ben Flint's hearty laugh broke out again. Yeah, look at the little devil! By gum, he has a fortune in him! I learned in the circus as much about Andrew as he knew himself. Perhaps more, for a child of eight has lost all recollection of parents who died before he was two. They were circus folk, English, trapeze artists, come, they said, from a long tour in Australia where Andy was born, and their first European engagement was in the Cirque Rocambeau. Their stay was brief, their end tragic. Lackaday Pear took to drink, which is the last thing a trapeze artist should do. Brain and hand, at rehearsal one day, lost coordination by the thousandth part of a second, and Lackaday Mare, swinging from her feet upwards, missed the anticipated grip and fell with a thud on the ground, breaking her spine. Whereupon Lackaday Pere went out and hanged himself from a crossbeam in an empty stable. Thus, at two years old, Andrew Lackaday started life on his own account. From that day he was alone in the world. Nothing in his parents' modest luggage gave clue to Kith or Kim. Ben Flint, who as a fellow countryman went through their effects, found not even one letter addressed to him, found no sign of their contact with any human being, living or dead. They called themselves professionally the Lackadays. Whether it was their real name or not, no one in the world, which narrowed itself within the limits of the Sacre-Rocambeau, could possibly tell. But it was the only name that Andrew had, and as good as any other. It was part of his inheritance, the remainder being ninety-five francs in cash, some cheap trinkets, a couple of boxes of fripperies which were sold for a song, a tattered copy of Longfellow's poems, and a brand-new gilt-edged Bible, carefully covered in brown paper, with For Fanny, From Jim, inscribed on the fly-leaf. From which Andrew Lackaday, as soon as his mind could grasp such things, deduced that his mother's name was Fanny, and his father's James. But Ben Flint assured me that Lackaday called his wife Mara, while she called him Alf, by which names they were familiarly known by their colleagues. So who were Fanny and Jim, if not Andrew's parents, remained a mystery. Meanwhile there was the orphan Andrew Lackaday, rich in his extreme youth and the fortune above specified, and violently asserting his right to live and enjoy. Meanwhile, too, Ben Flint and his wife had lost their pig Bob, Billy's predecessor. Bob had grown old and passed his job, and become afflicted with an obscure porcine disease, possibly senile decay, for which there was no remedy but merciful euthanasia. The Flints mourned him, desolate. They had not the heart to buy another. They were childless, pigless. But behold, there to their hand was Andrew, fatherless, motherless. On an occasion, just after the funeral for which Ben Flint paid, when Madame was mothering the tiny Andrew in her arms, and Ben stood staring, lost in yearning for the lost and beloved pig, she glanced up and said, Tiens, why should he not replace Bob, ce petit cochon? Ben Flint slapped his thigh. By gum, said he, and the thing was done. The responsibility of self-dependence for life and enjoyment was removed from the shoulders of young Andrew Lackaday for many years to come. In the course of time, when the child's état civil as a resident in France had to be declared, and this question of nationality became of great importance in after years, Madame said, Since we have adopted him, 
why not give him our name? But Ben, with the romanticism of Bohemia, replied, No, his name belongs to him. If he keeps it, he may be able to find out something about his family. He might be the heir to great possessions. One never knows. It's a clue, anyway. Besides, he added, the sturdy North countryman asserting itself, I'm not giving my name to any man save the son of my loins. It's a name where I come from that has never been dishonoured for a couple of hundred years. But it is just as you like, mon chéri, said madame, who is the placidest thing in France. For thirty years I had forgotten all this, but the by-gum of Colonel Lackaday wiped out the superscription of the palimpsest of memory and revealed in startling clearness all these impressions of the past. "'Of course we're fond of the kid,' said Ben Flint. "'He's free from vice and as clever as paint. He's a born acrobat. Might as well try to teach a duck to swim. It comes natural. Heredity, of course. There's nothing he won't be able to do when I'm finished with him. Yet there are some things which lick me eat altogether. He's an ugly son of a gun. His father and mother, by the way, were a damn good-looking pair. But their hands were the thick, spread, muscular hands of the acrobat. Where the deuce did he get his long, thin, delicate fingers from? Already he can pass a coin from back to front. He flicked an illustrative conjurer's hand. At eight years old. To teach him was as easy as falling off a log. Still, that's mechanical. What I want to know is... Where did he get his power of mimicry? That artistic sense of expressing personality. But my soul, he's damn well nearly as clever as Billy. During the talk which followed the discovery of our former meeting, I reported to Colonel Lackaday these encomiums of years ago. He smiled wistfully. Most of the dear old fellow's swans were geese, I'm afraid, said he. I was the awkwardest gosling of them all. They tried for years to teach me the acrobat's business, but it was no good. They might just as well have spent their pains on a rheumatic young giraffe. I looked at him and smiled. The simile was not inapposite. How, I asked myself, could the man into which he had developed ever have become an acrobat? He was the leanest, scraggiest, long thing I have ever seen. Six foot four of stringy sinew and bone, with inordinately long legs, around which his khaki slacks flapped, as though they hid stilts instead of human limbs. His arms swung long and ungainly, the sleeves of his tunic far above the bony wrist, as though his tailor, in cutting the garment, had repudiated as fantastic the evidence of his measurements. Yet, when one might have expected to find hands of a talent-like knottiness, to correspond with the sparse rugosity of his person, one found, to one's astonishment, the most delicately shaped hands in the world, with long, sensitive, nervous fingers, like those of the thousands of artists who have lived and died without being able to express themselves in any artistic medium. In a word, the fingers of the artiste Monquet. I have told you what Ben Flint, shrewd observer, said about his hands as a child of eight. They were the same hands thirty years after. To me, elderly observer of human things, they seemed, as he moved them so gracefully, the only touch of physical grace about him, to confer an air of pathos on the ungainly man, to serve as an index to a soul which otherwise could not be divined. From this lean length of body rose a long, stringy neck, carrying a small head surmounted by closely cropped carroty thatch. His skin was drawn tight over the framework of his face, as though his maker had been forced to observe the strictest economy in material. 
His complexion was brick-red over a myriad freckles. His features preserved the irregular ugliness of the child I half remembered, but it was redeemed by light-blue candid eyes set in a tight net of humorous lines, and by a large mobile mouth, which, though it could shut grimly on occasions, yet when relaxed in a smile, disarmed you by its ear-to-ear -ear kindliness, and fascinated you by the disclosure of two rows of white teeth perfectly set in the healthy pink streaks of gum. He had the air of a man physically fit, inured to hardship. The air, too, in spite of his gentleness, of a man accustomed to command. In the country house of which we met, it had not occurred to me to speculate on his social standing, as human frailty determined that the one should do in the case of so many splendid and gallant officers of the new army. His manners were marked by shy simplicity and quiet reserve. It was a shock to preconceived ideas to find him bred in a circus, even in so magnificent a circus as the Cirque Rocambeau, and brought up by a clown, even by such a superior clown as Ben Flint. "'And my old friend?' I asked. For I had lost knowledge of Ben practically from the time I ended my happy vagabondage. Maxima mea culpa. "'He died when I was about sixteen, replied Colonel Lackaday, and his wife a year or so later.' "'And then?' I queried, eager for autobiographical revelations. "'Then,' said he, "'I was a grown-up man, able to fend for myself.' That was all I could get out of him, without allowing natural curiosity to outrun discretion. He changed the conversation to the war, to the France about which I, a very elderly captain, have I not confessed to early twenties, thirty years before, was travelling most uncomfortably, doing queer odd jobs as a nominal liaison officer on the quartermaster-general's staff. His intimacy with the country was amazing. Multiply Sam Weller's extensive and peculiar knowledge of London by a thousand, and you shall form some idea of Colonel Lackaday's acquaintance with the inns of provincial France. He could even trot out the family skeletons of the innkeepers. In this he became animated and amusing. His features assumed an actor's mobility, foreign to their previous military sedateness, and he used his delicate hands in expressive gestures. In parenthesis, I may say we had left the weekend party at their bridge, or flirtation, according to age, in the drawing-room, now the pursuits having for us great attraction, in spite of Lady Oriel Dane, of whom more hereafter, and we have found our way to cooling drinks and excellent cigars in our host's library. It was the first time we had exchanged more than a dozen words, for we had only arrived that Saturday afternoon. But after the amazing mutual recognition, we sat luxuriously chaired, excellent friends, and I, for my part, enjoying his society. "'Ah!' said he. "'Montelimar! I know that hotel. In fact. And the patron, eh? You remember him? Forty stone! <laughs> the gaunt man sat up in his chair, and by what mesmeric magic it happened I know not, but before my eyes grew the living image of the gross, shapeless creature who put me to bed in wringing wet sheets. And when you complained, he looked like this, eh? He did look like that bleary-eyed, drooping mouths, vacant. I recollected that the fat miscreant had the middle of his upper lip curiously sunken into the space of two missing front teeth. The middle of Colonel Lackaday's upper lip was sucked in. And he said, 
What would you have, monsieur, c'est la guerre? The horrible fat man, hundreds of miles away from the front, with every convenience for drying sheets, had said those identical words, and in the same greasy, gasping tone. I gaped at the mimetic miracle. It was then that the memory of the eight-year-old child's travesty of myself flashed through my mind. "'Pardon me,' said I, "'but haven't you turned this marvellous gift of yours to, well, to practical use?' He grinned in his honest, wide-mouthed way, showing his incomparable teeth. "'Don't you think,' said he, "'I'm the model of a colonel of the rifles?' He grinned again at the cloud of puzzlement on my face, and rose, holding out his hand. "'Time for turning in. Would you do me a favour? Don't give me away about the circus.' Somehow my esteem for him sank like thermometer mercury plunged into ice. I thought him, with the blazing record of achievement across his chest, a man above such petty solicitude. His mild blue eyes searched my thoughts. "'I don't care a damn, Captain Hilton,' said he, in a tone singularly different from any that he had used in our pleasant talk. "'If anybody knows I was born in a stable. A far better man than I once had that privilege.' But as it happens that I am going out to command a brigade next week, it would be to the interest of my authority, and therefore to that of the army, if no gossip led to the establishment of my identity. "'I assure you, sir,' I began stiffly. I was only a captain, he, but for a formality or two, a brigadier-general. He clapped his hands on my shoulders, and I swear his ugly, smiling face was that of an angel. "'My dear fellow,' said he, so long as you regard me as an honest cuss, nothing matters in the world. I went to bed with the conviction that he was as honest a cuss as I had ever met. End of chapter 1